Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 14. Less than half an hour, I stepped off the car at a dark station somewhere closer to what I hoped would be downtown. The family, if that's what they were, didn't seem sad to see me go. In the whole time, no one else got on. The tram, once it was away from the factory, had mostly traveled along a narrow, elevated road all its own and had gone through even more industrial complexes. The city side of the factory, much like the section that faced the open wasteland, didn't seem to have any delineated start or end. There were fences and walls here and there, but whether they actually represented the borders of different properties and commercial outfits, I couldn't say. There seemed no order at all, at least to a foreigner's eye. The factories were piled so close to one another they appeared to meld together. There was just a gradual reduction of, for instance, the sort of equipment and facilities required to isolate and refine carbohydrate materials on a large commercial scale, and a gradual increase of the hardware and structures needed for a major fusion power plant, and then for plastic extrusion and bulk manufacturing, and then paper products, and dyes and inks, and a dozen other things I couldn't even guess at. To be certain, there were lesser buildings in the midst of all this, looking like unrelated offices or small-scale support services. They were often stuck in the middle of larger facilities, as if the really big outfits had been built around the more diminutive ones rather than replace them. In direct contrast with the first place I'd been through, all these facilities looked dirty and ill-maintained. The air was biting when I got out because the temp was still dropping. With three full shifts worth of darkness ahead, I was quite concerned. Though toasty at the moment, even my emergency cold gear wouldn't likely be enough for that. I tried to find an open net out here so as to get a weather report, but everything either required an account or was only a commerce site bombarding surfers with adverts. After a couple of minutes, standing there on an isolated tram platform high in the air, I got frustrated and just clomped down the exposed stone mold stairs to the ground. It seemed like enough ordinary people were out and about that there was no need to worry about loyalist forces gunning me down out of hand. The battle for the travel port had been only hours before, and within literal walking distance. That implied the fight had disrupted the Loyalist presence here in town. Or maybe it was still too early to call out a winner. Either way, they weren't on the street corners now, as I had expected. If anything, this neighborhood seemed to be in the hands of the Revolution. Figures bearing blue rags and box stars on their cold gear stepped quickly to and fro in small, chattery groups. Some bore sticks and hand tools like I'd seen on the news, Others would appear to be toy guns that likely weren't. These people were all excited, even tense. 
A small ground car rolled through a distant intersection, comically overloaded with hooting fools, carrying what looked like actual military firearms. Their car bore a sloppy box star on its side, while a flag I hadn't seen before flapped from a pole on the aft end. I didn't get a good look then, but later on, I saw other banners like it. A black field with a white circle in the center that had a single green bar across its middle. It symbolized Barlow itself, a white, frozen world with a verdant equator sitting in the darkness of space. A side street to my left paralleled the main drag. Since finding an open net was difficult, I dug through some tourist info I'd collected on the ship during our long approach. It had deserved scant attention before, but it did have a map, which I found again right off with a gesture in the air. Where in this city, assuming this had been the destination, would Carmi and Dell have been taken? And once again, why? There had to be a logical reason. No, no more of that. No more pondering and second-guessing without fresh information. Looking for strategy in mere chaos was a sign of overthinking the problem. If there was indeed any logic to this, it would reveal itself in time. The street I was on at that moment consisted of low dwellings on one side and the backs of shops on the other. These latter faced the well-lighted avenue one block over. The homes looked fairly decent, what I could see of them in the dark. Indeed, there were few lights on, but as I walked, I twice saw people peeking out from curtained windows. So there were folks at home, but there was also a scent of fear in the air, and I quickened my pace. Many of the factories I passed through on the tram ride were big. This residential neighborhood was far smaller and uninspiring in the shadows. Taken together, these observations gave the impression of a city that was, well, not. It was more like a big, ugly industrial park, with living quarters embedded at various locations. Some of them nice, but nothing especially grand. And there was nowhere near enough of them, implying a large suburban population I hadn't suspected. Why weren't those communities listed on the map? Turning the corner, I found the brightness of the main drag welcoming. There were shop windows alive with goods and products and all the shiny shinies that make up the modern storefront. Thin, cheap, but tough armor glass windows, all of which doubled as animated displays, went through flashy ads and come-ons. Some wreathed the products on display behind the window itself, while others seemed to be little more than slideshows of the business's entire inventories. This close to a residential neighborhood, the music and recorded sales pitches coming from these windows were constrained by acoustic lenses, a technology that kept sound focused to an area directly in front of the individual stores. The usual grinning, idiot animations hooked into embedded AIs hawked their crap and called to me as I passed in and out of their little sound bubbles. At least half the stores tried to send pop-up adverts to my retinals, talking in an irritating babble of languages. One of these I couldn't quite place seemed to spill out from the more upscale shops. I decided it had to be Seishan, which I'd only ever heard spoken in snippets, on vids and the news. That meant there were actual nobles out of imperial space here, and at least enough of them to warrant advertising in their own lingo. Then again, it might have just been a marketing ploy to seem exclusive, or, dare I say, 
elitist? Barlow was certainly close enough to the Empire to make things interesting, immigration-wise, but it was difficult to picture people with money and privilege settling here, or even visiting. I mean, it was an awfully long way to go just to play a little bestono. Then again, the money to build the factories had come from somewhere. Maybe all this talk of class disparity had some merit after all. That put a thought in my head. With a high population of immigrants and their descendants and its proximity to the Empire, Ain Fleet would almost certainly take an interest in the planet Barlow. Occasionally, interterritorial disputes cropped up because some doorknob over there with a title and small personal fleet decided to make a military play without the consent of either the throne or the conclave of families. When it came time to sort it all out, which usually involved localized military buildups on both sides of the border, followed by extensive negotiations and lots of boring news headlines, those same idiots sometimes got to keep their spoils. Others, who failed in their ambitions, might be given a pass and get sent home with a warning. Still others were pilloried or politically and financially punished. <laughs> Why, legend had it that one or two had even gone to prison for a while. Class and religious issues were important in the Empire, certainly, but big moves were almost always about money and power. It was a universal concern. Over there, over here, over everywhere. Credit. The heart of every problem, so the saying went, and every solution. Where was the heart of Barlow's problem, then? A planet harsh in climate, yes, but also rich in industry? A low population, but with plenty of work? It just didn't add up. For every modern, upscale jewel of commerce and culture in the Alliance, like, say, Jardin, there was a pioneer-slash-industrial world like this. Barlow wasn't even a member state yet. It held what they called provisional status, a catch-all phrase which simply meant that while the Ain did not have much say in local politics, it did have an interest in the star system as a whole and could offer, or enforce, protection and services under certain circumstances. Political revolutions were not generally one of these, but Barlow's proximity to the border seemed like it might be which could mean fleet, and fleet could mean problems. Mandatory search and inspection of all ships found to be in system, including their documents and cargo. Mandatory interviews with all crew members and passengers, and mandatory background checks on same. Possible impounds and or arrests for any number of unknowable and mysterious infractions. I'd heard enough stories to make such encounters into bad, bad situations in my head every spacer had. If it looked like Fleet was on its way, Griselda would be too, no matter who wasn't aboard, and I wouldn't blame a Lareda a bit. I shook myself to get out of yet another calculating reverie. I often got lost in thought when I was tired, and man, was I tired, despite the nap. There were a lot of people on the streets here, a couple of groups at either end of the block, it seemed like their numbers grew as others of similar mind or sentiment congregated with their fellows. Respective volumes were growing, too. One group had a lot of people wearing blue armbands. Others in that group wore black-knit caps, which looked both symbolic and functional. There had been passing mention on some of the radical nets I'd scanned of a revolutionary movement referred to as the Blacks, 
They were definitely working with the armband ones, but stuck together even then and were clearly not in the majority. Slightly different philosophies, perhaps. Each cap bore a patch or badge, that white circle with the green stripe. The other crowd up the street had a real mix of people to it. I saw some military-style uniforms over there, as well as guns. For that matter, both groups, which looked to be 50 or 60 strong at this point, had some visible weaponry. The blacks were all armed with crowd guns, many of which appeared well used. The blues also had the odd rifle, but mostly their sticks and tools. A couple of the blues must have spotted me, or spotted my armband, more like, and called, waving for me to join them. That suddenly seemed like a good idea safety being in numbers and I being number-challenged. The other group, presumably loyalists, swelled its ranks all of a sudden when a bus, yes, a bus, pulled up behind and a bunch of angry-looking people began piling out. I made my way to the revolutionary group and, once there, saw that it was considerably larger than I'd first imagined, spilling down both side streets at the next intersection. This seemed like a planned event on both sides, or maybe flash mobbing was a Barlow art form. Either way, I didn't want to be in the front ranks. Raising my fist for verisimilitude, it seemed to inspire the crowd, because suddenly everyone was doing it. Geriatra Ravosho, Geriatra Ravosho, Geriatra Ravosho. Long live the revolution, over and over. And then, a song started from somewhere, welling up and replacing the chant. It was something mournful, but martial. No doubt the new anthem of the freedom fighters, or at least these freedom fighters. The blacks didn't join in, and even looked, if anything, a bit peeved. Still, they couldn't help but be a part of it. As for me, I mauled the words in my best Sunday churchgoer fashion and pushed through to the back of the mob as quickly as I could manage. The other guys down the street, not to be outdone, started singing their own song of patriotism, and the two anthems muddled together like a miasmic flow from twin runoff pipes. It was discordant and provocative in a way the jeers and insults from either side had not been. Spirits were high, as were a lot of the people. Large bottles of some clear liquor were being passed from person to person, and I had one shoved into my hands as I squeezed along. This I shoved into someone else's almost immediately. Considering how many of them had it on their breaths, I only hoped no one struck a match. I saw my chance to break from the crowd as it thinned a bit towards the back. There had to be about 200 of them on this side now, with more streaming in. The other group must have had at least as many, or even more. These contenders for the heart of Barlow were mostly all behind me when I heard the first shots. Coming from up above and down the way a bit, like maybe the Loyalists had claimed the high ground again, it provoked instant pandemonium. People dashed off without looking back, including me. Many more ran the other way to join the fracas. Then, projectiles pinged off the armor glass of a clothing store to my left, leaving a series of wide dimples that warped the smiling image of an AI model. I just ran, already breathless from fear and fat and exhaustion. There was a group of younger people, 
teens maybe, running down a side alley, and in that moment they struck me like they knew the streets, so I followed. This dumped out into a well-lighted courtyard off the way, and we all stopped for breath. Shots and screams were still occurring behind us. Looking back, I thought I saw and smelled smoke rising above short rooftops and wisping down on the slight breeze. A dark-haired boy in the group said something to me in low speak, with his companions, two girls and another boy, all about the same age, nodding. I shook my head. Um, Inglis? Ah, he said, switching verbal gears instantly, though with an accent. You are an immigrant from the Alliance? Yeah, well, no, not really. I'm separated from my ship, in orbit. Nice planet you have here. That didn't get the laugh I was reaching for, but the boy grunted noncommittedly. Was not much fun, one of the girls said. She was tall, and her accent was thicker than the boy's, reminding me a bit of Ben Roggenstein's. What made you think it would be? I asked, surprising myself with my own vehemence. We have been going to demonstrations for weeks, the first boy replied. There was never any trouble like this. Well, if you're looking for change, it's coming fast now. There's fighting everywhere down here. They say East Travelport liberated today? Almost no violence. It was the girl again, her big dark eyes just a bit obscured by the fuzzy, low-hanging hood of her tailored cold gear held nothing but even clarity, like she was stating a widely held fact, widely quoted on widely various media. I didn't know how to respond. Well, they're, they're lying, I stuttered at last. You've got no reason to trust me on this, but trust me on this. The travel port is gone. Shot up, blown up, burned. You've had managers killed by their own workers right here in town. You kids should find a safe place and stay there. Where are your parents, anyway? Do not start that generation is vomit with us, the other girl, short and with rosy-cheeked anger, stated harshly. Her accent was apparent through excellent English, while her voice was a study in succinct hostility. She stepped forward and raised a dogmatic index finger at me. You can't liberate the people until you liberate its children. Whatever that means, I replied, mystified but eager to avoid a lecture. You can do what you want. I'm looking for some people, crewmates of mine. They were taken prisoner by rebels up at the high dock and brought down here. Do you guys have any idea where they might have been taken? Go choke yourself, you elitist porcon, the same girl spat and changed her index finger for another one. Oh, charming. Anyone else? If they were taken, they are elitist traitors like you, she pressed. We just arrived, I finally struck back. How are we traitors? We don't live here. We don't work here. Heck, we wouldn't have come at all if it weren't for our passengers. Then you aid the traitors. You help them escape. That is just as bad. No, we brought them here. A news crew. They want to get coverage of your precious revolution. That'll be a good thing for you, too, because nobody outside this system knows what's going on here. The official government channels are the only ones getting out. This gave them pause, even the vexatious little one, and they seemed to study me for the first time. You wear a blue band, the first boy stated with a nod to my arm. Yeah, because it's looking like the revolution will stick and I don't need to get blown away as an elitist traitor. 
I gave the loud girl a look, but she just stared at me with narrow eyes and a sour face. The first girl chimed in again. I know those newsies. Big blonde man is with them? Yeah, that's them. Where are they? They come to my house. Friends of parents or something. Talk long time, go visit other families, then come back and stay whole night. What they want? Oh, do not know. Talk in Seishan most of night. Too fast for me. Then she added, not my tongue, in a slow, peculiar way that got a laugh from the other kids. Obviously, it was an in-joke and possibly a little generationist vomit of their own. But her parents spoke fluent Seishan with Alan Small. Where'd they go after they left? How I know. No, wait, uh, Damo? I think he say Damo. Who's that? Do not know. Could it be a place? Could be anything. Can you find out? It's really important that I locate them. The mouthy girl stepped forward then. It is important for you to go get bent. You could not give Fekalo about us, about our problems? Fine, go find them yourself. They started to turn away as one. Obviously, this kid framed their thoughts, or at least echoed them, and seemed to be the alpha of the pack. No, look, please. I've slept two hours in the last two days. I haven't eaten in all that time. I've fallen down from space. I've been shot at, blown up. I've walked my feet nearly off my body. I just want my people. I just want to get back to my ship. Please. They looked at each other in silence for a long time, then said a few things to each other in low speak. Okay, the first girl said at last, then dialed into a sparkly, expensive-looking comm ring she wore. Speaking sotto voce for a while into her ring, she occasionally eyed me as well as the others. Her tone got quizzical after a bit, then she frowned and broke the connection. That my patro, he is to call back. Does he know where they went? No, he say he look, she replied hesitatingly, as if confused. But you don't think he will? No, I, no, he will. I didn't have much choice but to accept that. The riot hadn't abated, but it seemed to be roving off in another direction, because that combusting roar of violence and fear that had been right at our heels was diminished. Even so, there was more smoke in the air by this point, and my eyes were starting to sting. After some consultation in muttered low-speak, they settled on repairing to a favorite hangout on the other side of town. The little one, with all the attitude, looked tormented by my mere existence, but the others indicated it would be okay if I joined them. I certainly didn't want to come across as the pervy older guy hanging out at the malt shop, but that was a darn sight better than wandering around blindly on riot night, so I tramped off with them to their air car several blocks away. Out on the street proper, lots of people were still fleeing the violence. There were also loud wails approaching from different directions, with whatever passed in finery for John Law making a late appearance. It seemed unlikely that the police, as an extension of the government, wouldn't be backing up the Loyalists, but no matter which side they counted friendly, they were likely overwhelmed. The air car, when we finally came upon it, was parked on a dark side road. 
As a luxury model from over the border, it sported fat bumpers, running boards, and some peculiar fins along the sides. Clearly, it was designed for beautiful people having a beautiful time. It turned out to belong to the one boy I hadn't spoken to yet, whom the others just called G. Apparently, his English was about as good as my low-speak, having emigrated with his folks within just the past few months. His personal appearance was much like the cars, fast, good-looking, and playfully elegant. I suspected his language skills had more to do with inattention to his studies than it did to his recent arrival or any mental defect. He just had a bearing that implied confidence, as if the entire galaxy wanted him as a dear friend or secret lover, and he was sorry there was only one of him to go around. G's oblivious slickness was positively dispiriting, spotlighting them all in the gulf between their playground values and the dark turns of an increasingly dark world. But when he lifted the car off the street and banked us away from the riots, he did so with that same assurance, and I found it hard to dislike him. We all exchanged vital details as the ground fell away and the city slid by, the kids identifying themselves as classmates from school. I got the impression it was a private one. This seemed odd, considering the population of Barlow, until I learned they were all home on some sort of extended holiday and that the school was somewhere back in the Empire. The girl who'd spoken to her dad was called Maylie. She seemed to see G as her romantic interest, while he seemed to see the world as his. The other boy was called Benley and was clearly the boyfriend of Sindra, the loud girl. They were thoroughly unimpressed by me, but the declaration of my profession was a spark for tangential conversation as they related comments and anecdotes about the many space trips they'd all made with their families and friends. Privilege was in their bearing and casual conversation, often interspersed in the same breath with disparaging remarks for the elitists they didn't seem to see themselves as. It would have been amusing in other circumstances, but right then it seemed burdensome and flat-out dangerous. From the air, I could see yet another source of smoke on the outskirts of the city. Beyond the variegated rooftops and industrial towers, it arced up into the dark sky, black on black, with a corresponding red glow at the base. This elevation provided my first really sweeping glimpse of finery, and I was downright shocked to see that my earlier impression from the tram, which had seemed so unlikely, was actually true. There was almost no break in the factories, as if the entire city was one. The new blaze, naturally, therefore, was coming from an industrial source. All that was visible of it, beyond the darkness and smoke, was a small cloud of hovering fire-suppressant drones. Illuminated from within, they dipped and spun and glowed like gnats in a sunbeam. If they did their job, the conflagration would soon be out. That was good, because I strongly suspected they'd be very busy this night. As we flew... The arresting hypocrisy of these children, forgivable in the young though it normally was, became distressing. In the midst of all this chaos, these young people, not a one of them yet a legal adult I didn't think, intended to relax and chat eloquently about current events and personal dramas. 
they seem to covet the classic, vapid role of emerging intellectuals trapped by societal decadence, bent on saving the world through cerebral chit-chat and youthful style, like so many others, in so many other eras, on so many other worlds. It was a crowd I never ran with at their age, or any other, but I was running with it now, if not to save the world, than to maybe save myself. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.